Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus, your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Mill City. So good to be with you. If you're brand new with us, just for sake of introduction, my name is Aaron Stern. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, can we all together welcome everybody who's joining us online? Can we just, uh, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. We are with you and we are so grateful that you are with us. So in 1837, Hans Christian Andersen wrote The Emperor's New New Clothes. Some of you maybe are familiar with that story. It's about an emperor who spends lavishly on clothing, cares excessively and obsessively about his image at the expense of state and kingdom matters. So two swindlers arrive into the capital city knowing about his obsession with image and they pose as weavers and they say that they can supply him with magnificent clothing. But they say it's invisible to those who are stupid or incompetent. So the emperor hires them and they set up their looms and get going to work. And so a succession of, of, of officials and the emperor himself go to check on their progress, but the looms are empty, but they pretend otherwise so that they don't seem like a fool. So finally, the weavers report that the emperor's clothes are finished. And so they get the clothes and they, they do this acting like they're putting clothes on him. He acts like he's getting dressed and he sets off in the procession through the whole city. The townsfolk uncomfortably go along with the pretense not wanting to appear inept or stupid. Until a child blurts out that the emperor is, in fact, naked. The people then realize that everyone has been fooled. And although startled, the emperor continues the procession, maybe more proudly than before. Now, of course, the emperor had lost the big picture, had got caught up in something that didn't matter most, and then created something that didn't matter. Religion does the same thing. It distracts, it can distract from what matters most. Create something that was never intended. And so we're in a series going through the Sermon on the Mount. We're in the second half of Matthew chapter 5 in a series, a little sub-series called Losing My Religion. Because Jesus came to abolish religion. And so we're starting in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17, going to 20 today. And so the scripture says, this is Jesus preaching in his most famous sermon, where he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, the law of the prophets is a way of saying for what we would understand to be the Old Testament. It was his way of saying the Scripture. The law referring to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Prophets being those like Isaiah or Ezekiel. But it was also a way of just saying the entire Scripture that they had in that, at that particular time. So that would include the Psalms, and that would include the narrative and the, uh, the, the, the story of the Scripture. He uses this word abolish, 
which means to destroy. But the implication in destruction or destroying is therefore it doesn't matter or therefore it doesn't need to be obeyed or paid attention to. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, now this little phrase, for truly I tell you, is a way that Jesus spoke and would have been understood in this particular first century culture to mean this is important, so pay attention, because, and, and what I'm about to say might actually come as a surprise to you. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. See, what Jesus is saying here is that fulfillment doesn't mean to finish and throw away, but actually to bring to completion. And he's saying we can't just throw away the Old Testament. You can't just throw away this piece or that piece and say, I don't like this, or I'll pick and choose. I'm going to Thomas Jefferson myself in terms of what I'm going to do with the Scriptures and cut pieces out and make it so that it fits what I like. You can't just explain pieces away because we don't feel good about it or it doesn't seem to be relevant anymore. And Jesus is saying if you do that, you're going to miss the whole thing. See, Jesus didn't come to throw out the Old Testament. He says that he's coming to bring the story taught and communicated in the Old Testament to its ultimate climax. He's saying, all is accomplished in me and in my kingdom. Jesus is saying, I am the key to the whole Bible. If you throw it out, you throw me out. So when somebody says, you know what, I really like Jesus. I really like Jesus, but I don't like the Bible. That actually can't happen because the Scripture is about Jesus. Jesus and the Scripture cannot be divorced from one another. And then Jesus goes on in verse 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. A little play on words there, least of these commands, least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What is he saying? He's saying, knowing God's word is not a substitute for living it. In other words, practice, action matters. Faith and obedience go hand in hand. Dallas Willard, he wrote the book, The Divine Conspiracy. He says, the idea of having faith in Jesus has come to be totally isolated from being his apprentice. What's an apprentice? Somebody who becomes like the one that they are apprenticing under and learning to do what he said. One-fifth of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, a fifth of it is about doing what it actually says. So Jesus regularly uses this word practice in this sermon to indicate not just teaching you something for you to intellectually ascend to, I'm actually teaching you something so that you live it out. Which is why here at Mill City our desire is not just to be a Bible-believing church. Now if you're brand new today, you might be like, wait, what? Marge, let's go. We, I don't feel This is uncomfortable. We don't want to be just a Bible-believing church. We want to be a Bible-living church. 
where the Bible takes root not just in our brains, but it actually extends to our hands and our feet and our mouths. Jesus is saying in this passage, there is a relationship between how you treat Scripture and how you experience the kingdom of God. How you handle, whether you throw it away or you engage it and and practice it and live it out will determine how you experience the kingdom. And he finishes this little portion in verse 20 by saying, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, at first glance, this feels like a, wait, what? The Pharisees? The Pharisees were meticulous. They were meticulous in their, in their adherence to the law. And you're saying that unless I do better than them, I am not going to make it into the kingdom of heaven? That seems impossible to be more meticulous. That's kind of like saying, unless you're better than Mother Teresa. You're like, uh, I mean, I try, but I don't. They had taken not only the law, but then they had built secondary rules around the law. And so it was rules upon rules in order to make sure that there was perfect adherence. But Jesus is saying the religious leaders of the day had lost the plot line. And so therefore was actually suggesting and distinguishing between surface level righteousness and heart level righteousness. So when he says, unless you're righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, what he's saying is, unless your righteousness becomes heart-level righteousness, whereas theirs is just surface-level righteousness, you'll miss out. See, the religious leaders of the day had made religion, the external, the surface-level righteousness, the center of what it meant to be the people of God. See, when we put religion or when, what religion does, I should say, is that it puts duty at the center of relationship with God. But apprenticeship to Jesus puts delight at the center of relationship with God. His delight in us and our delight in response to Him. See, when we focus on religion, you will cultivate a surface-level righteousness and a self-consciousness. Become very aware of yourself and how am I doing? But we focus on Jesus and He will cultivate a heart-level righteousness and cultivate God-consciousness, a focus on God and who He is and our response to Him. So Jesus not only in the Sermon on the Mount, kind of insinuating here to the teachers of the law, but says it so much more directly in many other places in the Gospels. For instance, in Matthew chapter 23, he says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Outside looks great, inside is rotten. In Isaiah, and Jesus quotes this in another place in Matthew, he says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And Jesus unpacks this in greater ways in the rest of chapter 5, and this is where we'll be going over the next several weeks, where he says, he says, You have heard it said, but I say to you, 
Meaning, you've heard it said, and this is the surface level righteousness, but I say to you, and he addresses the heart level righteousness. Because he says in his first one, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, and he starts talking about anger and contempt in your heart. In other words, you can not do this, but have rottenness going on inside. And you say, so does that mean he's throwing away murder? No, he's saying if you get the heart level righteousness and deal with anger and contempt, you won't murder. Dallas Willard, again, in The Divine Conspiracy, says one must aim to become the kind of person from whom the deeds of the law naturally flow. The apple tree naturally and easily produces apples because of its inner nature. So the question I think this begs for each one of us is, are we content if things look good? Are we content if we look good, say the right things, and participate in the right things? I think it's an important question for anybody who's a parent in the room, which includes me. Am I content as long as my boys say the right things, act the right way, and participate in the right activities, but don't pay attention to where their heart is in relationship to God and His ways? See, Judas, one of Jesus' closest disciples, or one of His twelve disciples, shows us that you can be around Jesus and Jesus' activities and never actually be formed by Jesus. So I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, the World War II martyr, he says, the righteousness of the disciples cannot be a personal achievement. It is always a gift which they received when they chose to follow Jesus. It's a gift. It's a gift of grace. And so the question that Jesus is addressing here in this passage of the Sermon on the Mount is, how much of the law does someone have to obey to be a Christian? Today, there are droves of people leaving the church, young and old. Oftentimes it gets referred to in the uh, description of nuns you've heard that before. Nuns being somebody who would say, what, what religion might you affiliate with or something like that? And they might say something like, none. Oftentimes, nuns would say that they used to be a follower of Jesus or used to be a church-going person. And so, I wonder if, and in my, many of the conversations I've had with people who would indicate that, are asking a question similar if the question in the first century was how much of the law does someone have to obey to be a Christian, the question today might sound like how much of evangelical culture do I have to obey and believe in to be a follower of Jesus? So maybe we find ourselves in a world where secondary things have become primary at the expense of the mission of Jesus. It's heartbreaking. And heartbreaking to see people walking away because maybe of the emphasis on secondary things. When that happens and the emphasis is on surface level righteousness, it creates shame on one side and pride and spiritual elitism on the other. And it is these questions and this dynamic that can lead to a faith crisis and to a some, a, a term that has gained popularity in the last several years, and that's the term deconstruction. 
Maybe somebody, you might ask somebody, oh, uh, what's going on with you, or where are you, or man, I haven't seen you in church. Well, I'm deconstructing my faith, which leads to things like hashtag evangelical, right? And maybe, maybe you are in that place where you'd say you're deconstructing. Or maybe you have friends or close family members who are in that place of deconstruction. Or maybe, maybe you're unfamiliar with the term. It is an ambiguous term, I will say that. It kind of has become a junk drawer term where you kind of, anybody kind of throws any idea behind it into it. But I would say in general it means to deconstruct, take your faith apart. I, I like the word picture or the, 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 the idea of a house. Jossie and I, uh, when we lived in Colorado Springs, we owned a house built in 1904. And when we first bought it, uh, it had aluminum siding on the outside of it. Um, it had linoleum floor in the kitchen, mauve countertops. They were awesome. Actually not. And that's why we spent the next 10 years tearing that stuff off and out of the house. Because, because we didn't look at the house and we think, wow, I don't like that stuff and let's tear it down. We actually wanted to pull the, the beauty and the life that's in the house out of it. It was some of the beauty of the house is actually covered with linoleum. And so it had, because it had good bones. So the good bones were there. We just needed to take some things apart and uncover the things that got covered that shouldn't have been covered in the first place. And so deconstruction can be like that where we can say, it doesn't need to be torn down, I just need to take some things off of it that have covered some of the more important, beautiful things of it. Now, deconstruction can lead to destruction. But deconstruction also can lead to reconstruction and a stronger, more beautiful faith. So I just want to encourage you, if you hear somebody saying that, I think it's important not to dismiss the process and the journey. Because I actually... Actually, can relate. It, it oftentimes starts, not always, but it oftentimes can start because there's a question, because of an incongruence or an experience related to something not matching up. Uh, I, when I was in Colorado Springs, I worked at a church where, where the pastor had a moral failure. He was my boss, the pastor of the church, and and it caused me to ask some questions that I may not have ever asked otherwise. And, and the questions were questions around church, questions around faith, questions around being a pastor, questions around what it looked like to follow Jesus. And it was born out of a desire to follow Jesus and His way more closely. And what I found that I did over the course of these next couple of years was tear some linoleum off of the beautiful hardwood floors that had gotten covered. In order to get to the heart and recover the plot line. And to recover the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. See, the goal of deconstruction is to reconstruct in the way of love and the way of Jesus. So, there are a couple of different ways that this can go. There is an unhealthy or unhelpful deconstruction, and it is rooted in de distrust and 
and leads to destruction and deconversion. And it sounds like, did God really say? Just like the enemy in the garden says to Adam and Eve, did God really say that he's good? Did God really say that this is true? See, today, what, did God really say that He's good? Did God, did God really send His Son? Did Jesus really live? Is sin really real? Is the Bible an authority? But deconstru- in our world, in our day and age, deconstruction is, is kind of the thing. But deconstruction for deconstruction's sake is, doesn't lead anywhere. It takes no creativity to to destroy or deconstruct things, and that's it. Healthy or helpful deconstruction is differentiation and disentangling. So, differentiation is, is about maturity. As a young person, we differentiate over time from our parents, not a distance, complete distance from, but we start to become who we are. We believe in things not just because, right? And disentangling is an important process where we disentangle our faith maybe from cultural norms or cultural ideologies, from idolatry. It's something actually that every one of us should do. The prophets in the Old Testament were encouraging the people of God to disentangle their trust and faith in Yahweh, in God, from the practices that they had incorporated from the nations around them. So what were they calling them to? Come back to the heart of God. Come back to what it looks like to be the people of God. And the same thing should be true for us today. So it sounds like you have heard it said, but I say to you. If unhealthy deconstruction sounds like, did God really say? Healthy deconstruction or disentangling sounds like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You may have heard your youth pastor say, you may have heard your parents say, you may have heard the TV preacher say, or you may have heard and fill in the blank somebody say, but I, Jesus, say to you. And Paul, later in the New Testament, does this. He doesn't use the same phraseology, but he does this. You've heard it said because there was lots of arguments about whether or not a non-Jew needed to be circumcised. And so he in many of his letters, might have said something like, you've heard it said you must be circumcised, but I say to you, what Jesus says to you, what the Spirit of God says to you, is circumcision of the heart is what this is all about. So what does it sound like for us today? You have heard it said that your life is hard because you didn't pray enough. Maybe you heard that or that was what was insinuated to you. But Jesus says to you, In this world, you will have trouble, and I will sustain you. Or you have heard it said, your feelings are bad, and therefore to be dismissed and overridden. But Jesus would say to you, I created you with emotions, and they are to be paid attention to as indicators of things God wants to heal and transform. Or can we we really go for it here? You're like, I don't know. (laughs) You have heard it said, if you are a Christian, you must vote for Trump. Or if you are a Christian, you must vote for Biden. 
But I would say to you, be a better citizen of the kingdom of heaven than you are of the United States of America or any nation for that matter. Because our allegiance is to a risen king, not to a politician or a political ideology. Make anybody nervous? <laughs> See, we, we might find ourselves in this struggle because practice doesn't match with belief. Somebody says, I believe this, but then the way that it gets acted out seems like there's an incongruence. And so what happens sometimes is, well, if that's how it looks, then I'll just throw the whole thing out. That's not the goal. And when you hear the word deconstruction, don't hear compromise. Hear wrestling with faith. Don't hear disregard for the Scripture. Hear trying to find and engage with the heart of Scripture. Hear wrestling with faith because like Jacob wrestled with faith. He wrestled with God. It's valuable and good. It's encouraged in the Scripture. Job wrestled with God. The psalmists, we see their wrestle with God. Think of John the baptizer. He finds himself in prison, and what does he do? He sends one of his followers to go talk to Jesus and say, are you the one that we've been looking for? Asking a pretty big question. See, questions are not a lack of faith. I actually get nervous about people who stop asking questions. Because oftentimes it means that they think they've figured God out. God's bigger than our questions. He's not afraid of any question we might ask Him. And that's the process and journey of faith. Faith, faith isn't always easy. Which, which sometimes deconstruction can feel like a relief. But faith is something that we press into and we work through and we wrestle and we grow and we strengthen. And you know, if we press, it means there's resistance. And resistance makes us stronger. And so, if I can, as your pastor here today, can I just encourage you, if you're in that place or find yourself in that place, I think one of the keys is to walk with a wise and trustworthy guide. As I, was, as I was navigating the questions that I mentioned a little bit earlier, I cannot, I cannot be more grateful for the people that listened to me, that we wrestled with these same questions together. And you might say, well, what, who, what constitutes a wise guide? Someone who loves you, loves God, and loves the Scripture. See, if somebody loves you but doesn't love the Scripture, it's not necessarily going to go in the right direction. Somebody can love the Scripture and not love you and loses a heart. So all three, loves you, loves God, and loves the Scripture. It's important as we talk about this here today that, to know that doubt is not a virtue. Now, doubt is in and of itself not a bad thing. In order to have faith, there has to be an element of doubt. I don't know about this, but I trust anyway. But just because doubt is not a virtue does not mean that Jesus dismisses the doubter. Jesus 
actually shows otherwise. One of his disciples, Thomas, oftentimes known as Thomas the Doubter or Doubting Thomas, when Jesus found out that he wanted to see and touch his nail-scarred hands and where his the spear from him being on the cross pierced his side, he didn't say, oh, jeez, and dismiss and shame Thomas. He welcomed him. Oh, let me see. Let me show you. Or think of the story of the two people that are walking away from Jerusalem after Jesus died on the cross. And they're walking on the road to Emmaus. And these two people, they're, 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 they're asking, like, I, I thought he was the one. I, I guess he's not. Look, he's dead. He wasn't the Messiah. Guess we missed it. Jesus starts walking with them. What are you guys talking about? Now, they don't recognize him. And they start telling him about what they're walking through, their doubts. They're like, guess we're going to walk away from that. We're going to go find a, a see if the, who's the real Messiah. And as Jesus talks with them, he unpacks the scriptures to them. And by the end, they realize that they're talking to Jesus. He's, been, he's risen from the dead, and they see him. What's amazing about this story, in my opinion, is that here the, these two are walking away from Jerusalem, walking away from Jesus. Jesus walks with them as they walk away from him. Sometimes you might feel like you're walking away. I think it's so helpful and important to know that Jesus walks with you. And as he walks with you and you walk with him, he can show himself to you. Oh, there you are. There you were the whole time. I just didn't see you. It was covered with linoleum. One of the wise guides that I had while I walked through the questions that I had was Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson, most famously known for writing the message version of the Bible. I, I like to say that he translated the Bible into American. But he was a pastor for 30 years and he wrote about 35 books trying to recover what it looks like to follow the way of Jesus and recover the pastoral vocation. And I read almost all of his books in a couple years span. And later, several, a couple years after that, I had the privilege of going to Eugene Peterson's house in Montana and spent three days with him and his wife, Jan. So it wasn't just from afar, but it was also on a personal basis. And, and just a few years ago, he died, went to his funeral in Montana, and Eugene's son did the eulogy. And after talking about his dad for a little while, he got to the end of his message. And he says, for 50 years, you stole into my room at night and whispered softly to my sleeping head. It was the same message over and over. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. Wherever you find yourself this morning, God loves you. He's for you. He's coming after you. And He's relentless. 
Maybe you're in a place of deconstruction. Maybe you're in a place of doubt and questions. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. And he's relentless. Maybe you find yourself in a place of pain, a place of disorientation, a place of, 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 of upside down and everything seem, you can't seem to find straight and, and, and everything's topsy-turvy. God loves you. He's for you. He's coming after you. And he's relentless. For some of you, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to come home. To come home to Jesus. Maybe some of you have walked away. Maybe haven't been in church in a long time. And you've walked away because because of secondary things and other things getting in the way. And maybe today you say, you know what? I need to come home to the heart of God. I need to come home. Put my faith and my trust in Jesus. Maybe you're here and you would say, I need to put my faith and trust in Jesus for the first time. You've never done that before. The step is simple. It's a prayer that says, Jesus, I give you my life. You can say that under your breath. It's not the only thing you need to say to God, but it's a beautiful first thing of the beginning of a journey of surrendering to Jesus and walking with Him. Or maybe your next step here today is to repent, to repent of religion. Christianity is the only religion that I know of that asks us to repent for doing good things for the wrong reasons. And so, would you take a moment, even now, but throughout this next week, and reflect on, is there anything secondary that has overrun that which is primary? Have I got caught up in some things that are only surface-level righteousness, but my heart is far from God or needs to be healed. And if you, when you find those things, if you find those things, would you bring them to God? Ask Him, God, would you search my heart? Find any anxious or offensive way? Would you confess and repent? Turn towards Jesus. And for all of us, Weekly practice is to memorize Matthew chapter 5, 13 to 16. We studied it last week. It's about being salt and light and not losing our saltiness or covering the light, which can happen by incorporating and coming only to religion. We want to be who God has called us to be, salt and light in the world. And there's lots and lots of reasons for walking away or Moving into a place of deconstruction, one of the big ones oftentimes is church hurt. Pain experienced within the family of God. I think it's heartbreaking when, we, when I see somebody trading God because of the way that a church might fail. I think it's important for us to realize and remember that churches are led by and filled with broken people. But the reality is, is because of that, there's going to be hurt. But 
Scripture teaches us that if we are hurt by community, we need to also then be healed in community. So maybe your next step is to step into relationship, into going to Mill City Connect to get more connected here at Mill City or into a city group to engage in relationship. Wherever you might be, would you allow the Holy Spirit to, to lead you in your next step? Let's pray together as we, as we study the Scripture and we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Father, we need you. We need you wherever we might find ourselves in our relationship with you and our journey of faith. God, we open our hearts and our lives to you. God, we we want to we want to follow you more truly and wholeheartedly. So will you help us to identify the things we need to disentangle our faith from, ways that we need to differentiate and mature and become the apprentices of Jesus that you've called us to be. To become and out of a heart-level righteousness, that we, what will come out of us will be the way of love. Help us to examine our hearts. Would you help us to allow the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts? And may we be people that are quick to repent.